Hello, students. Hello. Welcome to the Theo 102 Pop Culture Smackdown Revolution Edition. It's a revolutionary topic. And for this episode, debate, whatever you want to call it. It's not a debate when I crush so badly. <laughs> it's just me talking. Yeah. You're um, just, just being right. It's just me being right. <laughs> what is that? What do you call that? Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, we're going to talk about this issue of higher criticism or historical yep. criticism. Is it good for faith or bad for faith ultimately? And I think this is a pretty relevant one. This one is going to feel, I would guess it will feel very lively and current to you yeah, because hopefully. it's definitely something that's very like a big open debate in Christian churches. We should set this table a little bit, even mm-hmm. though I know we've been setting it all week through our course content, yeah. but we should reset the table just so like it, it's all self-contained here within the pod. Like mm-hmm. what is higher criticism? What is historical criticism and why just like, what is it? Let's just start with that so that it's clear what we're debating about. Well, let me give you the definition that I've used in my work. And you tell me if that sounds good to you as a Ooh, Bible scholar. Sounds fun. I define higher criticism or historical criticism as applying empiricism or the scientific method to the Bible. Oh, I think that's a really great definition. Great. I really like that because okay. it's broad enough that it, it doesn't like narrow it down because it could really be like, you know, language or philology, like mm-hmm. reading the Bible in its original languages and, you know, trying to determine what words mean. And there could be places where a word has a traditional meaning or people have interpreted it in a certain way, but it turns out maybe you could do that kind of empirical work and find out that that word actually didn't mean what you thought it meant. And it could have theological consequences, for example, or you could do archaeology, you know, I think in originally like, and this is the way the text, I think the textbook, uh, Mark Knoll for this week, mm-hmm. Turning Points mm-hmm. by Mark Knoll, mm-hmm describes this term as, you know, it was kind of like the phrase people used in the 1800s and the early 1900s to describe kind of like what you're saying, but it described a certain kind of approach, the the so-called European style approaches um, and some American too, but usually, usually these things were born in Europe to, you know, doing that kind of empirical work and to looking at it with this almost like kind of like a scientific lens. And it could include even criticizing traditional ideas about the Bible and well, meanings. I like to think one one um, history professor explained it like this. Um, if you've ever seen any of those like British uh, costume dramas, oftentimes in the decor, they'll have a butterfly collection mm-hmm. where there's like a, a bunch of sadly dead butterflies that have been pinned oh. to a piece of yes. like paper or something like that. And then there's like the scientific word for them underneath it. Yeah. And that was a really popular thing in the same era where mm-hmm. people were like looking, exploring the world and trying to dissect and understand the world through science. Mm-hmm. And that it's just the same logic applied to the Bible. So it's like the Bible is the most important thing for most Protestants, surely, um, and many Catholics as well. And so you're going to like look at the Bible. Right. The, the same way you look at those butterflies. Well, and the question is, can you, you know, I've, I've heard another metaphor that's like really stark to describe this. Oh, good. It's, it's, it's kind of like an anti-higher criticism thing, but like, it's like describing higher criticism as like taking a puppy and putting it on a table and like dissecting it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. The question though is- Is it still the puppy afterwards? The question, yeah. Can the pup, can you sew it back up and does it come back to life? Or with the butterflies, like, can you do that? But then can you also go out in nature and find real butterflies? And it's like, it's all part of the butterfly experience. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, right. that's the question, I guess, that we, that we are debating. Like this style of looking at the Bible where you use reason, where you use a language, where you really look at it critically, where you say, I mean, I think- think that there's one fundamental tenet of historical criticism, which is that you can't have any, and this is true for science, you can't have predetermined conclusions. 
Right. Which means that the evidence could lead you in directions that violate the- Say, for example, the creeds. The creeds, right? Right. Right. And so for it, like, there's a sense in which you can't, it's kind of like if you took it on analogy with like evolution, for example, like if by the word evolution, you mean an atheist perspective that says there is no God and no creator, then can a Christian believe in evolution? No, not by that definition. If though you mean, oh yeah, God, God created somehow, you know, sure, and there sure, were processes, sure. of course, then you believe in like the evolution. And many you, Christians And many do. Christians yeah. do. And so the evolution you believe in is always de facto theistic evolution. So for Christians who do historical criticism, there's, I think, a kind of tag on, which is like, oh yeah, I do historical criticism, but within the boundaries of belief in the creed. Right. Within the rule of faith, in other words. Right. Where, but, but, but you could say, no, that actually ruins it's the technique. It's not higher criticism. That's not higher criticism. And that's what we're debating. Yes. Friends. That's the We debate. are so excited about this. The oh. argument that we will put before you is historical criticism or higher criticism, good faith, good for the faith, or bad for the faith. One of us will argue, argue pro yes. that it's good for faith. The mm-hmm. other will argue mm-hmm. con that it is bad for faith. This is, of course, all I feel the need to just mark and just say, you know, retroactive to all of our, we're, we're giving you a slice of things. Right. We're trying to excite, we're trying to inspire the human imagination here, yes. people. Like, we cannot go into every single thing, and I know you know that, but. We basically do our best three minutes. Our best three minutes. Um, back on and forth. On one side or the other. And then we'll mm-hmm. continue. Mm-hmm. And then we will reveal mm-hmm. at the end our real views on this topic. Yes, we will. Um, okay, so... Oh, coin toss. Okay, I'm going to call it. Have you always, when you said your real view, have you been telling the truth this whole time? I've tried to. Yeah, I have too. Yeah, I mean... Just want to do a check-in on that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think so. Maybe <laughs> what is the truth? Well, I was trying to go back through. We've done a lot of these now. I know, So I'm yeah. like, is there an exception? Is, is there a time when I lied? Yes. Um, Examine yourself. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, okay. I'm flipping. Call it. Okay. Heads. You are correct. Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm going to say, I'm going to pick that higher criticism is bad for the faith. Ooh. I'm going con. And I, thus I'm doing pro. I need a drink of water. Here. Okay. Are you ready? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Just give me a second here. <laughs> I'm trying to psych you out. Deep breath. <sighs> okay. Your three minutes starts now. Students, reality is good. Okay? Reality is our friend. History is our friend. The truth is our friend. It could, it could, the truth could hurt. You know this. You know reality hurts sometimes, but it's ultimately our friend. Does anyone out there want to know what's true? Does anyone out there wake up in the morning, you eat your Cheerios and you're like, hmm, today I want to delude myself with stupid lies and believe a fake thing. <laughs> Like, of course not. You don't, no one does that, right? The tools of higher criticism, historical analysis, philology, language, archaeology, literary criticism. You into poetry and English? You can do this with the Bible too. It's great. To, just to name the big approaches, those approaches teach us what is real, what is historically real. The Bible can be abused badly when taken out of context. I think we would all admit the context can be a guard against heresy, against all kinds of weird directions and spiritual movements that just go off the rails. But this raises the question, how do we know the context? Uh, Through historical criticism. That's how we do it. By the way, um, most Christian churches, most pastors, Bible studies use higher critical methods and treasure them all the time. Like, for example, when a pastor might, you know, hopefully be able to read the Bible in its original language and, and talk about in a sermon, like what this or that word meant, or showing how showing archaeology and maps and pictures and sermons and Bible studies. Those are higher criticism inspired techniques, right? So it's made its way in and it's it's pretty 
it's pretty normalized. It's pretty basic. Most churches use higher criticism as though, if, and this is now, this is a, a, a difficult point. Most churches use higher criticism as though, of course, it always supports faith. It doesn't. It's new. I will say it's neutral. It's a method. The method doesn't have a perspective. It's like saying, does your refrigerator like you? It's like, well, no, it doesn't like you or dislike you. It's just a thing. You know, it, it has to be used. Ultimately, I will say that historical criticism is, it's a recognition of the incarnation. Jesus was both God and human. That sounds like a contradiction, but Christians affirm it. Humans wrote the Bible. The Bible had human authors in real time and place. We have to deal with that. We want to know things. And how do we deal with that? Higher criticism. It teaches us things. And we use our minds to worship God. You shall worship the Lord your God, Jesus said when recounting the greatest commandment, with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, as it comes through in, in many translations. Um, and so higher criticism is a way that we worship God with our mind. Um, from a Christian perspective, though, we keep it within the boundaries of, of faith. 30 seconds. That's all I have to say. And I what? Think, I think that that's the truth. What? Boom. Mic drop. We've we've talked about like the really <laughs> the really cocky thing to do. The big flex is to be done before it's your time. To be done. <laughs> All those times when we're like ranting and raving as the time goes out, it's then not you a know good sign. That our point is maybe not as strong. Yep. Okay. Okay. That was pretty good. That was pretty good, but All right. maybe not as good as what you're gonna do. Oh wait, I forgot to give you Oh Kay. there it is. You got it. That helps. All right. Your turn begins now. Students, the so called higher criticism as if there's some sort of lower form of criticism, <laughs> destroys the faith. It basically, this is what I want to present to you students. Do you remember the Wesleyan quadrilateral mm. that we just talked about? There's the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It's not all of the four points are weighted equally. The scripture has the highest like point of, of weight and importance for Wesley. And I want to argue that higher criticism basically puts reason in the place of the Bible on the Wesleyan uh, quadrilateral. It mm. overemphasizes human reason to our detriment. Higher criticism gives us a false sense of security, for one thing, about the human capacity to understand God. Mm. If you think that you can understand the God of the Bible just through scientific inquiry, then you, my friends, are headed down a not profitable path. Ultimately, I want to argue that higher criticism subjects the Bible, a pre-modern text, to a modern way of viewing the world mm. that is not by any of stretch of the imagination infallible. So a lot of higher critical methods give us the um, mistaken impression that the imp empiricism can lead us to truth or lead us to the right way of thinking about the world. When any of you science-y STEM students can, t can attest to the fact that like scientific inquiry, we can make mistakes along the way. And the same is true when it comes to higher criticism. We can think that we're getting at some sort of objective truth when actually we're not. We are making some sort of mistake and we just don't know that we're doing it. Higher criticism ultimately, I think, in the end is bad for Christianity because it's bad for Christian witness. Because guess who argues about higher criticism? It's usually not non-Christians. It's usually Christians arguing with each other over the finer points of doctrine. And it's it ultimately, they, the arguments are nasty. 
a lot of times. <laughs> so higher criticism puts Christian pits Christians against Christians and isn't about what Christians should actually be about, according to the end of Matthew, which is evangelism. They should be telling people about Jesus, not quibbling over like whether or not the scientific method tells us some particular thing about the Bible. The scientific method is great and fine and good and yields us many tech advances, including like things that are great for healthcare and human thriving. But the scientific method is not God, and it's certainly not the arbiter of truth. Rather than getting caught up in whether or not the flood happened in a particular way that the Bible says, like, or that the, crea- the world was created in seven days, we should be thinking about the fact that God gave us promises of restoration and healing, and sometimes in the form of a rainbow. Rather than getting up caught up in the specifics about whether or not seconds. Mary was a virgin, we should be talking about what it means that Jesus is divine and human. I would also argue that higher criticism can be a little bit elitist, and Ooh. it favors people with specialized degrees over people who read the uh, the truth of the gospel with pure hearts and open minds. Oh, and, <laughs> and... Oh, wait, I gotta give myself. The end. The end. Your point about elitism is, I think, a decent one. I think it's, I think it's better than I often give it credit for um, because it's true that it's like, if you're just, for most people in most places, like this conversation we've been having, even over, you know, in the earlier podcast this week, mm-hmm. re- reflecting the video, it's like, you might wonder like, well, okay, you're talking about Europe a lot. This is all like very Eurocentric, right? Mm-hmm. Like what mm-hmm. about like mo- like 98% of the world's population, which was well. not in these places? You know, and I think that that's a great point. Like, should the should the community of faith really treasure a method that's only accessible to certain kinds of people? I think that's less true today than it was true in the past, maybe, because people have the internet and the sure. learning has become democratized. But I want to flag that as, as a, a good point worth oh, considering. thank you. Yeah. Well, one point that you made that I thought was especially good, you made a lot of good points, was the idea that the Bible can be abused when taken out of context. And the thing that I thought of when you said that was this idea that, and it's something that the reformers were particularly interested in, which was that, that the elite church leaders could Mm -hmm. potentially abuse Mm -hmm. the laity or like the normals in the world, um, by holding like the keys to biblical interpretation and application Uh with like a select few. So I think that you did a really good job when you said that the idea is if we interrogate like the historical context, we could potentially, you know, protect the body of the church from that kind of abuse. So I thought that was a really good point. Um, Okay. Let me engage you in a bit of sparring. Please, please do. If you don't mind. (laughs) Um, Look, you were talking about, oh, people treating higher criticism or science as if it was God or this impression that empiricism is Uh definitely true. Uh Like no one said science or higher criticism was God. You know, the only the only people who would this stuff only gives the impression that empiricism is truth if it's used immaturely. Like, I think what you're criticizing rightly is an immature view of empiricism, right? Mm. Like, not the idea that you just like replace it and be like, well, I just did my philology and my word study and my archaeology. Therefore, I've exhausted the meaning of the Bible. Like, that's within the community of faith. That's not the way that Christian scholars would or should do that, right? Like, if if like if I've ever done that in my teaching or my work with higher level students sure. in Bible studies. If I've done that, to the extent that I've done that, I've been immature. I was doing it badly. I was doing the wrong thing, right? Mm-hmm. To do it well is to is to is to bring that up right from the get go. To talk about how we're all situated in a place, and even science is 
is is perspectival and situated in ways that are, are often uncomfortable even for scientists, right? You know, I think I would, I think, you know, you make a good point. And I think I would maybe um, add to my argument about putting um, like empiricism. I, I think I would nuance that by saying that in many cases, um, the historical critical method subjects the Bible to the authority of the sciences. Mm -hmm. So for example, a famous point of, of contention with um, like the higher critical interpretation of the Bible was uh, the virginity of Mary. So, so like the, in the, um, like this idea that Christians confess a virgin birth, which is a big, it, it has its own like line in the creeds. Right. So these traditional doctrines, right. um, in the early 20th century, there were people who said basically like, it's not plausible to think that a child could be conceived right. with, without like sex. So then therefore Mary, right. like that line in the creed, we should throw that out. Well, the funny thing is now we know that it's totally plausible that a child could be conceived, a, a, like a normal not God child could be conceived without <laughs> sex through like medical technology. A not, a not God child. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so my point is, is that actually what what has changed is just our understanding of, of the scientific world has changed um, right. in a way. So what I'm, I, I want to counter that by saying, yeah, but there's like a false sense of security with a lot of higher critical oh, interrogation. Mean. Like, oh, you know, now we know this, but actually our knowledge might change in 20 years. Well, no, but I think that's built, that's, that sounds totally right what you're saying, but it is true that within the scientific method, there's built in a system for that change. And yeah. it's, it's called new ideas and hypothesis and testing and all that kind of stuff. So I think the system is, is definitely open to, to, to change, but it could give someone a kind of like arrogant confidence that, they've like won some kind of game or argument against somebody when maybe they haven't won the argument quite. Let me test this idea out on you. So if that's true, you're totally right. Because I think true empiricists, one of my favorite religion scholars is a an empiricist, William James. Oh yeah. Um, so I'm not necessarily against empiricism, but here's why I want to try and argue this as, as potentially bad for the faith, because it makes doctrine in state unstable. So mm -hmm. what would we say about something like the virgin birth or the or that God created the world, would we say like, okay, we're going to adjust it according to our understandings, like over time mm -hmm. that would make like what Christians tip have traditionally thought of as like everlasting truth, mm -hmm. just like subject to human knowledge. Well, I think it's like, there's a mixed system though, right? Like there would be some things that are like the creed is the creed and we keep the creed. We're not ditching mm -hmm. the creed. We're not taking a statement out of the creed about born of the Virgin Mary, but it's always been a question, as you know very well within Christian within Christian history yeah. about how people take that. But isn't and like that, what that means. so? Why does the creed safe? Like, is there any other part of the Bible that's safe? That's where I kind of like. Well, well? I, th I think in a sense, like in a way, you could say like none of it's safe. Right? Yeah. Like, and it's it's none of it's safe to the extent that our experience before God as learners in the world is one is an experience of change and of mm -hmm. growth. Mm -hmm. So no, mm -hmm. you're never safe from that. No one's safe from that. So the creeds will not be changed even if we think that it's not scientifically credible some right. some part like the resurrection was another big one yeah, right yeah, yeah. that it's not credible to think that someone could be dead for three sure. days i mean you're bringing up very like scientific like kinds of things it's yeah. also more about too stuff like well what did the actual historical jesus say right versus oh, what that's the gospels say right. he said you know like i think it gets down it is sometimes those sciencey the science things that you're saying but it's also like 
it's 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 very it's very textured. It's very nuanced. It's just a huge topic. Well, I think one of the things that you said. I know we're we're supposed to be in the sparring thing, but yeah. Well, I no, wanna... we've we've ended the sparring. We oh, went we five are, minutes. Are we okay, okay. We're at, yeah, we're That's at five true. minutes, we and now we're, we're kind of we're we're gliding toward the reveal here. Okay? okay. Okay. Well, let me just ask you, what is your real position, Doctor Doak? Okay. Okay. I believe every word of what I said. Nice. 100%. Obviously, as you can tell from like our sparring session too, there are a lot of problems and questions that this brings up. But I think in the context of, of, of just good Christian community, we can do this. I'll let me, I'll say this thing though. I will make this concession. Okay. I think the historical critical method, this is just a a metaphor I've used with students for a long time and it makes sense to me. Um, Think of like two metaphors for light and for seeing things. Mm -hmm. You could go out into the woods with a big spotlight and you could shine it like this high beam light and you could, you hear noise up in a tree, you shine it up there. You could, you know, hear something on the ground and be like, is that a snake? And you shine your light onto the ground Mm -hmm. and you can really see a lot with it. Um, but you have to know where to point it. And, um, now think about another metaphor for light, a campfire. Mm, Nice. Yeah. I could tell which one you like already, (laughs) but you know, but of course who doesn't like a campfire, Right. but like, think about using a campfire. I'm just thinking about s'mores. Yeah. S'mores. Uh, but you wouldn't use a campfire to try to see something up at the top of a tree, right? Or 200 feet away. You have to be close to it and it's warm. Now at the end of a long, long, long day, do you want to sit huddled up around a flashlight or a campfire? It's pretty clear like that. You're not going to be on your deathbed, like recounting facts and figures and word studies and archaeology and about the historical Jesus. And, you know, you're not going to be doing that. You're going to want to be around the fire in prayer. Mm -hmm. And so I think Mm -hmm. it's not about, again, it's like a misunderstanding of what it is as a tool versus like just throwing it out entirely or, or using it to dethrone God, which is it? It's like, no, it's not like that. It has a place. Mm, That's what I think. That's very nice. That's very nuanced. Sorry, that was long. I liked that. No, I mean, campfires. Yeah. Let's, let's talk more. No, on my deathbed, I want to be around the campfire, right? For sure. But as I'm, I'm alive and kicking and trying to work on my salvation with fear and trembling, I'm going to come back to the campfire campfire, but I I, give me the flashlight and we're running around in the dark. Oh, I like that. I like that. Um, okay. So I really appreciate that very nuanced and students, just so you know, both Dr. Doak and I were trained in the higher critical we were. tradition. I have minor, that's not my, it's very down, low down on the list of my expertise. Oh yeah. I should have mentioned as a disclaimer, my entire education, is all of my scholarship criticism. is all like a, you know, a Christian version of the higher, higher criticism. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think I believe most of what I said, although I, I gave a much more heightened version of what I, this is mm. what I really think. I actually agree with you. I think that higher criticism has a place in like uh, in Christian devotion. Mm-hmm. But uh, my my point about the Wesleyan quadrilateral, I think still stands. Mm-hmm. I think that, that um, some forms of higher criticism, and I'm just going to bring back to the earlier conversation we had this week about the fundamentalists and the modernists. Mm-hmm. Those two groups of Christians, I think are a prime example of giving higher criticism more power than it ought to have. Mm. So there are plenty of people, they're like devout Roman Catholic scholars who use higher criticism, but they're Roman Catholic. So they're going to have a Catholic understanding of tradition and like a much broader palette to to paint with than people who would be fundamentalist or modernist. Mm. And I grew up in the Pentecostal tradition that is like, that really emphasizes the spirit and experiences with the Holy Spirit. So Mm. while I think that, Certainly. 
I love history. So I'm going to love higher criticism, right? Like I love historical criticism. I love knowing right. more. And I love thinking about like, what was Jesus really like? And what did he look like? And yeah. did he have a sense of humor? And what, and if we know that he has, like, if we think about him in his historical context, let's look at other Jews in the first century. And right. like, let's, so right. I love that stuff. But I just think that I, I guess I'm saying that I kind of agree with you. It needs to be in its in its right place. Everything it, in its place. You gotta you gotta you gotta you gotta you gotta use it for something, and it has to be used in service of worship. Students, we want to know what you think. Higher criticism, historical criticism, bad, good for the faith. Can't wait to hear what you think. Mm-hmm.